Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. This week's interview is not so much about poker strategy as it is about uh, interesting people I've met at the poker table. Um, I've known Pat for several years now and a very successful businessman. We're going to talk about success, life lessons, a little bit of poker. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You can find this episode and all other episodes of the Poker Zoo at persuadio.nl. Uh, there's a place there underneath each of the shows to leave a comment, uh, any questions, comments you might have. We would love to hear from you. There's also a place there to subscribe via iTunes or your Android device, any other uh, podcast aggregator of your choice. Online poker is now legal in Pennsylvania. A couple of guys were mentioning it uh, at the table the other day, and so I signed up several nights ago and played the last two evenings. Game seemed to be pretty good. Uh, player pools uh, decent. And uh, hopefully I'm um, going to sign up for one of these tournaments and think one of them for a million dollars or so and live a life of leisure uh, my remaining few years. But we appreciate you tuning into the show today after the infamous gong. Enjoy this week's interview. <laughs> Well, today's guest has been a friend of mine for several years now and is one of the most financially successful people I know, at least, and also happens to be a pretty good poker player. So welcome to the show, Pat Burke. Thank you, Dean Martin. It's always <laughs> a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> well, first of all, I heard that you are a new grandpa, so congratulations on that. Thank you very much. I think... Uh... They're lucky they have a very content, easy baby to take care of. Good deal. And this is your first grand uh, granddaughter? Correct. Her first grandchild of any kind. There but uh, she's uh, she's already dominating everybody's time and attention at you know, just like a week old. There you go. And I, and I know you're a softie because you purchased a second beak chouse just so you could be close to uh, your new granddaughter. Yeah, well, I, maybe my wife did. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a show about poker, so I want to talk a little bit about poker and a little bit about what makes your life story interesting. So starting off, how did how long have you been playing poker, and how did you get started? Well, uh, I'm the uh, I'm the oldest male on both sides of my family, my mother's side and my grandmother's side, and whenever there would be family get-togethers. The, all the adults would sit around and they would play penny ante poker. So everything from you know dealer's choice, seven stud, five draw, baseball, baseball in the dark, high Chicago, low Chicago. I mean, you name it. These guys would uh, crisscross was always one of my favorite games. But uh, you know, as kids, we were stuck in the gallery, not uh, not allowed to play. And I think when I turned about twelve years old. I got invited to the table, and uh, they threw a pile of pennies and nickels and dimes in front of me, and uh, I quickly started learning how to play poker. Like most people, losing more often than not. <laughs> so that uh, that was the be that was the beginning of uh, of my degradation into the the realm of poker addicts. Well, there you go. You you are. I think about my age, maybe a couple year, couple years older. So you've been playing a long time. If you've been playing since you were twelve, yeah. And uh, you know, we used to have uh, poker games as, uh, when I was growing up, and 
you know, like, like most kids, uh, you know, we're 16, you got a driver's license. Um, you know, we'd go out and probably do things we shouldn't have been doing, you know, try to find somebody to buy us beer. Well, after, uh, one of my friends got, uh, an introduction to the jail for possession of possession of beer. Our parents decided that, uh, they probably couldn't stop us from drinking, but what they could do is set up an environment where we weren't out riding the roads. And, uh, so about four different families got together and they said, okay, we're going to, we'll move the party from night to night from house to house. Adults would go buy us beer and take our car keys away from us so we weren't allowed to leave. And we'd all sit around playing poker all night and eventually crashing out on the floor or on couches or chairs. And so uh, we had a pretty steady two or three nights a week of, of poker with uh, under our parents' supervision. And I know you're a competitive guy. We've talked about this as we both raced motocross back in the day, but you were apparently a better rider than, than I as um, you had a factory Yamaha sponsorship. But I'd be interesting to, interested to know where you think that competitiveness originates in your personality. Uh, you know, I think uh, like most good and bad things, you know, probably from my parents and, uh, you know, my immediate family, I think that uh, my dad was one of those really, really smart guys that, uh, you know, didn't have a college education, but found a way to be successful in business and you know they kind of instilled upon us I'm, I'm one of five boys in the family uh and uh you know we were playing sports from an early age and you know it was just you know some of those life lessons that uh that they learned one, one of my, one of my biggest life lessons about maybe not being competitive but being uh a winner was I, I got into a fight when I was about 10 years old. I got into a fight with one of my best friends, Vinny Latuka. And, and frankly, Vinny kicked my ass. And, and I came home, and I remember my dad sitting on the front porch, having just mowed the yard, drinking a can of Schlitz. And, um, you know, I'm crying, looking for my mother for some comfort. And he stopped me and said, what happened? And I told him, and he said, uh, go find Vinny kick his ass and then come back home. <laughs> so I left. I went and found Vinny. He kicked my ass again. I tried to sneak in the back door. My father caught me. He said, where do you think you're going? And I said, you know, I need mom. He said, no, you don't. You have a brother, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, go get one of your brothers and go find Vinny and kick his ass. This is so politically <laughs> so after, incorrect. After giving Vinny a good beat down, uh, came home. I had a black eye and two bloody lips. And I was smiling from ear to ear. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of learn that as a life lesson, you know, never stop. Use everything at your disposal and, uh, you know, keep coming back. And if you keep doing that, you know, from a competitive nature, people will respect you no matter what you're doing, right or wrong, win or lose. So, you know, that's sometimes uh, when you're playing competitive poker, you know, those attributes can come into play right. too. Well, I know – you have the bankroll to play in some pretty big games, but you are also content on beating up the field at 1-2 or 2-5, wherever you are. Uh, but you were in Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and I understand you were invited to a private 1-2 game, and I wonder if you would tell uh, tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, uh, I go to Vegas a few times a year to, you know, gamble and, uh, you know, meet up with friends. And, and when I landed, I was, I was picked up by one of the casino cars and, uh, my host, who's actually the, the head of marketing for the casino said, uh, you know, I know you're interested in, uh, in playing some poker while you're here. Another of our guests is going to host a private game. And, if, you know, I've got a seat for you if you want to play. And I said, sure. Well, they playing. He said one, two. And so I checked into my room, showed up in the, the suite where the game is. Uh, there were eight other players. And uh, they said, OK, the minimum buy in is 100,000. <laughs> and I was pretty shocked because. One, I only had about $10,000 on me. Uh, two, I looked at my my host friend and said, uh, it's a 1-2 game. And, and I, when he mentioned 1-2, I thought they're not playing $1, $2. Maybe they're playing $100, $200. And it turned out they're playing 1000 2000 <laughs> So I said, uh, "Gee, I didn't, uh, I didn't bring enough for the minimum buy-in." And they said, "That's okay. You're good for it. You know, the house will front you the money." And and I said, "Well, uh, you know, the other thing is, I really got to figure out a way to get out of here." <laughs> so, it's so outside I, uh, your comfort level at, I the, said, at the moment. Uh, uh, yeah, with a bunch of guys I don't know, and uh, you know, I play, I play a. a a serious game once or twice a month at home, you know, where the buy-in's five thousand or ten thousand, and uh, and uh, you know that's the that's the serious poker for the month. So the the one thousand, two thousand, and when I'm having to you know take money from the house, made me slightly uncomfortable. Uh, but you know they all seemed like a bunch of nice guys. We had an oil guy from Texas. We had a, a venture capitalist out of California. We had a couple of finance guys out of you know out of my world on Wall Street, and uh, one of the guys I had actually never met but knew of him uh, through business, and uh, so I said, "Okay, guys, I, I can only play for about an hour and a half, and I'm meeting somebody for a late dinner, you know, but uh, you know we'll see, we'll see where it goes." So I bought him for a hundred thousand. Most of them were buying in for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. And I knew right then that this was kind of a uh, a level of money play that I had never been involved with before. So, so these are these are guys like billion dollar assets or hundreds of millions in assets, right? Oh yeah, yeah, and and you know all nice enough, and and most of them knew each other. So, as it turns out, I of course end up being the big blind as we start the game. So I've got that. So your first got, two, your first two grand's gone, gone the first yeah. hand. Yeah. I haven't even seen a card. I've lost 2000. Uh, and, uh, you know, it goes around the table and the guy makes it five and another guy makes it 10 and there's two callers and it gets around to me and I've got, I've got a garbage hand. So I'm happy to fold and pay my $2,000 entry fee. And, uh, I would come up on the small blind next hand, and I guess that first pot was probably probably about a hundred and forty, hundred fifty thousand dollars when uh, when the hand was done. And uh, and I'm thinking, gosh, I just got to find a way to get out of here without losing a hundred thousand dollars. So 
So on the small blind, I pick up a couple trash cars. But what I notice is, you know, running around the table, it's the same thing. It's 5,000, make it 10, make it 20, fold, fold, fold. And it's kind of heads up poker for 20, you know, 20,000 on, on uh, pre-flop. Right. So uh, now I'm the button. I look down at my hand. I have pocket kings. I'm thinking, wow, this, I'm, you know. This is the great setup to lose to a flopping ace, but uh, same same pattern. And so we get a five thousand, we get a ten thousand, and it's four callers at ten thousand. And I throw my ten thousand in, and uh, the flop comes, a wonderful flop. Of course, the ace flops, but you know the card I'm worried about. But then I get a king king flop, ace king king. So, yeah, ace king king, and I'm on the button. So, one guy checks, another guy makes it ten. The guy next to him makes it twenty. I smooth call the twenty. The guy who made it ten turns around and makes it fifty. Gets a call from the guy who made it twenty. I'm sitting there. I I don't have enough money to play that way, so I just go all in. I get a snap call, and lo and behold, the poor guy had pocket aces and thought he had flopped the nuts. We quickly got <laughs> we quickly got <laughs> see, to the end. So he's got aces and, full, and you got quads, right? Yeah, and and you got three people, and you got three people in the pot. Nice. So. Uh, you know, the, the third guy, uh, you know, quickly figured out his ace queen suited wasn't going anywhere. And, uh, you know, I was able to take down a $340,000 pot. And, uh, you know, and everyone was very nice about it. So uh, <laughs> You just knit, you it, know, knit it up for another hour and you're done, huh? Yeah. And, and, you know, frankly, I think the side pot got the guy more money than I won. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> the the guy with aces over kings was uh he was a pretty good uh he was a pretty good player but i think they were all shocked I, and i was shocked but you know sometimes in poker you know you get those flops and yeah. uh you know the 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 great thing for me was i really didn't have to play up they were driving all the action and uh you know when i got a fifty thousand dollar bet in front of me and i only got a hundred thousand in chips you know what are you going to do? Are you going to call? Are you going to fold? Or are you going to go ahead and shove? And I thought at that point I'd ride the four kings to the bitter end. <laughs> if, I, if I lost the four aces, so be it. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the moral of the story is I need to, if I ever get invited to a private one-two game in Vegas, I need to clarify what uh, one-two actually means. Yeah, because uh, these guys said I was able to actually sneak out of there you know, with the two hundred or three hundred thousand dollar profit, I uh, I I still played tight the whole way, because frankly, with you know three hundred thousand dollars, that the way those pots were going down, you know, that could be two or three hands. Exactly. You know, you would you know be out of the game. And I was a little bit worried about the fact that you know I'm kind of leaving the game early with a bunch of chips, and uh, they were all very nice about it. They invited me to come back after the dinner, and I uh, you know conveniently was too tired to show back up. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, they were, uh, you know, a nice group, nice group of guys probably wondering what the hell happened to them. 
who, who, who was, was that guy that showed Who was that mask man? <laughs> you know, uh, you had mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, playing one, two, and two, five. And I kind of think that's recreational poker for the most part. If you want to be good at anything, you got to practice. And, you know, a good way to practice is on a two, five game or a five, five game where, you know, you practice different styles of play. And so, you know, sometimes, and I've, and I've seen you do this in playing too, where, you know, you're coming in and you've decided you're going to be aggressive and you're going to push the bets and you're going to make your bluffs and, you know, lose your money when, uh, you know, when you should. And, uh, you know, I think that if you're practicing to play, you know, 80% of the time you're out there playing ought to be for practice. And so it ought to be at a stakes level where, uh, you know, you're honing your skills. And, you know, and it, it's everything from, you know, being able to read people and watching things closely. You know, when I when I sit at a table and people aren't paying attention to the game, which often happens when people will get consumed by their phones or their iPads, and, you know, they're not paying close attention to the game. They miss some of the things, some of the action and, you know, how things are going. And I think that that's, uh, you know, if you treat it as a practice, uh, you know, you're going to you have a lot better, a lot better time. And then you'll end up being a much better poker player when you get into a serious money game. Well, speaking of serious money, it's fairly common knowledge that you around the poker room that you are a person that has a decent amount of disposable income, shall we say. In fact, one of my favorite jokes is when I see your Rolls Royce parked under the canopy out front I uh, will walk into the room and announce loudly it's great day to to drive a Rolls Royce to the casino if I had a Rolls Royce that's what I would have driven to the casino this morning and uh, usually gets a laugh out of you but I'm, I've always been interested in people's life stories and how they get started. And one day I just asked you simply, what was your first big financial break or how you got started? And we wondered if you'd take a few minutes and just tell us that story. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's things that, uh, you know, career-wise, things that paid off well. But those were probably secondary to developing a reputation uh, a successful reputation in business that allowed me to get positioned to actually make some money. And um, I'm I'm not sure exactly which story I might have told you, but the one the one that comes closest uh, to really the thing that that set me up early in my career was I was working as a junior guy on a very large IT outsourcing deal. And uh, and it was going to be the first deal that really approached kind of a billion dollars in, in total contract value. And I was the junior guy. And so I like to tell people that I was in charge of dry cleaning and donuts for the most part. So, you know, every day I'd show up with a dozen donuts and I'd watch these guys who'd been in the business for 20 plus years coming up with a strategy on how to, uh, you know, how to win this business. And, and uh we finally got to a point where we had a really, really difficult prospective customer, and um, we were dealing with the CFO of a major, major automotive manufacturer, and uh, and our team pretty much gave up because this guy, every time we'd show up, this guy would beat us like a yard dog, 
and uh, everyone had pretty much given up. And so I, you know, kind of raised my hand from the back of the room and said, you know, I have an idea that I think that they'll like, you know, want to see what you guys, you know, think about it. And they said, all right, what's the idea? And I told them and they said, I, he'll never, he'll never buy that. And I said, well, you know, at this point we're ready to give up. So, you know, why don't we go give it a try? And, uh, they said, fine, go give it a try. And I walked up, took me about 30 minutes to explain the idea. The guy looked at me and said, you'd be willing to do that. And I said, absolutely. And knowing he was a CFO, he wants predictability about his expense over time. And so I went in there and said, you know, look, we'll give you this deal and I'll guarantee the price goes down 3% a year for five years. And and he said, "If you're willing to do that, we have a deal." And so we ended up we ended up signing uh, the first billion dollar outsourcing deal. I got a lot of credit from the from the more senior guys in the room for having the idea and being able to pitch the idea. And I think that was the thing that that really positioned me well ahead of people who had the same level of experience and education. And uh, you know, once you know, once you get that kind of door upwards cracked open, you know, you gotta you gotta fight to stay there. But uh, you know, that's the thing that got me positioned really to go be one of the first guys to go start up a, a new company and and have some uh, equity in that. And uh, I was happy that that paid off. And then um, you know, I've kind of parlayed that into different opportunities one of those being i was you know probably the most unlikely partner of a wall street private equity firm ever maybe even to this day so uh you know you got to take those take those opportunities but it's always always good to you know you got to have some cojones sometimes (laughs) yeah uh Well, the story you told me, you you were one of uh, an initial small group of people that Ross Perot pulled together for a start. Correct. And my understanding uh, was that subsequent to that, as one of the original people going in, I assume you had a large number of stock options, and subsequently you had left the company and were maybe the only one of the original ones that had left in the meantime and were able to trade those stock options when the company went public. Correct. Uh, so what was Ross's, what was the company, Ross's company name? Pro Systems. Pro Systems. He started off. It was his off, second company. It was his yeah. second company. He started off, what, buying uh, slices of time on an IBM mainframe and then reselling those to companies that couldn't afford a, a big mainframe, Correct. Yeah, Ross had uh, Ross just he passed away this this uh, past summer, and uh, that was a great great loss to many of us who had the chance to work with him. Um, but he was a successful IBM salesman, and back in the early days of computing, and you know you you'd buy a mainframe computer, and and it would sit idle about fifty percent of the time. And Ross looked at that as an opportunity that he could go sell customers down, you know, idle time on other people's computers and save them having to buy their own computer only to have it be idle 50% of the time. So he built electronic data systems off of that, that shared model, a shared computing model, um, not time sharing as it used to be called in the early days, but more facilities management and, so General Motors ended up buying electronic data systems from him in 1984. 
he was uh, the largest stockholder in GM. He was also a big thorn in their side because he kind of felt like GM ought to be <laughs> more focused on building quality cars. Uh, so about four years later, uh, they asked him to leave with, the, I think they paid $2 billion for the company. They asked him to leave by giving him another $750 million. And, uh, and he ventured off into the, into the wilderness and, uh, you know, kind of left all of us behind. But lo and behold, he popped up about 18 months later saying, you know, I think we can do this again and do it better. So, so you were part of EDS? I was part of EDS, and I left there. Uh, I left there and ended up uh, being part of the startup group for Pro, Pro right. Systems. So after, uh, after uh, let's see, I'm going to say six or seven years, I left there and went into the software business, as all good tech guys would do in the late 90s, right? We had the internet was starting to boom, and you know, software was the was the high leverage, high profit margin product in the marketplace. But when I left, I kept all of my initial equity. So, right. so you know, in the meantime, you have you know episodes of Roth running for president twice. Of uh, you know having, if you looked at the nineteen or twenty million people that voted for Roth. They had the highest per capita income of any voting block among all the people who voted. So when Ross decided to take the company public in 1998, you know, he'd had two unsuccessful runs for president, but had really kind of his name brand was really, really high. And uh, you had all of these people who, you know, wanted to own part of his next new adventure of, of Perot Systems. And so demand far exceeded the, the available float of the stock, and the stock opened. It was a $16 IPO price, and I think the first trade was at 48 <laughs> the, the, next, the next day, it traded as high as 84 or $85 a share. I was sitting there with one of the only blocks of non-restricted stock, <laughs> and and I sold my way through the run up to average, you know, my average uh, return price was in the high seventies. By the time it all settled down and the lockup periods ended for the other Perot Systems guys, it was selling for twenty dollars a share, which frankly was pretty much of a fair price. And uh, right, you know, but you know the. The stock market is not rational, so you know it, it runs on runs on emotion. And you know, here was a case. That, can you imagine if you had a million of the twenty million people that voted for Ross wanted to own a hundred shares of his company? Uh, that's a hundred million shares. Well, they only floated ten million shares into the market, so you had demand at you know ten x the available supply which was the reason that you had this gigantic run-up in price. And Ross hated that. as uh, He hated the fact that there were people who bought that stock for $80 a share only to find six months later it was selling at $20 a share. And, but that's the inefficiency of the market that you know allows people you know, who are making the right bets to, to make money and uh, – you know, now that dog will turn on you, 
So, you know, you may, may make money one time that way, and then you may turn around and lose a bunch the next time. You know, and you, you don't have to look for – you look at Uber – uh, you know, today Uber pre-IPO was uh, was selling for about 25% higher or 30% higher than it's selling after the IPO. So you had a bunch of people who poured money into this thing, who you know, upon IPO figured out they lost 30% of their investment. Right. But uh, yeah, that was my first. That was really my first exposure to, you know, having. You know, a substantial network that was kind of unencumbered. And, you know, it, it allows you the freedom to do, you know, do things that other people can't do and, and to take other chances to make more money. And so I was, I was able to do that. I, uh, I remember the software company I was working for, my boss came in and looked at me and they said, what are you going to do? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you've made all this money now. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to keep coming to work every day. So, uh, <laughs> Maybe maybe we can make some more money here. Yeah, and uh, and it ended up being right. Two years later, we were able to sell the firm, and everybody made some money on that. So, yeah. it's it's interesting how you can take an opportunity and you know make something worth out, uh, you know, worthwhile happen, and uh, and then be able to you know kind of accelerate that over the course of your career. And of course, success breeds confidence too, right? And you see that at the poker table all the time. Right. Uh, you know, we, we call it, you know, people getting on a heater or people getting hot. And, you know, a lot of times it's uh, it's just the confidence of having won a few times and, uh, you know, allows them to continue to win. One of the questions that I always uh, am pondering and thought of it as I was, uh, I knew I was going to be interviewing you is how much of success is just being at the right place at the right time, uh, you know, luck always, good luck always uh, helps. But more so than that, it's being able to leverage the assets and opportunities that do come your way um, and not squander them. Yeah, you know, one of the things that Ross used to always say was, you know, we'd have these town halls with the employees, and he would say every time, go out and hire people that are better than you and smarter than you. And, and the reasoning was that, you know, smart people will often do smart things. And it's a little beyond the pale to expect stupid people to do smart things. So, you know, if you can, uh, you know, put talent in the right places and, and allow them the opportunity to, to succeed and fail, you know, and, and fail with the safety net, then, uh, you know, you get better results. Well, you had told me that story, and then several months later, I heard you talking to someone else and learned the backstory to that story, which was that the reason you had left the company was that Ross had hired a new uh, CEO that started doing some things that you thought were uh, were stupid, <laughs> and the, the famous... Uh, email uh reply to all email that that uh, basically called him out well uh, this uh this fellow was um you know he did many many stupid things and uh you know one one of the stupid things that i first got on the bad side with him was that he sent a company-wide email saying that we'd had such a great year that everybody was going to get to take the week from christmas to new year's off and 
it showed how little he knew about our business because our business was being on site with customers and supporting them. And if the customer was working, we were working. And so basically, you know, I fired back to the company wide email about <laughs> this. This was the stupidest thing I ever heard of. And we were going to be there to support our customers. And, and, uh, you know, I'm sure the guy's hair was on fire when he looked at the email. But I decided, you know, picking sometimes reply to all never works well. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, picking a fight with uh, with your boss in front of, uh, you know, 5,000 other members of the company is not career enhancing by uh, by any means. And, uh, he and I had a number of other fights along the way that uh, that, you know, in looking back, Dean, uh, I would have fired me, frankly. <laughs> I would, uh, you know, the level of insubordination was really, really high, and uh, that's not healthy. That's not healthy for the company. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's an episode of being fired that uh, that I learned. Actually, I learned a lot from, and and was one of the things in retrospect. Had that not happened. You know, I would have been just like all my other friends, still working there when the company went public and exactly. being locked up and right. not being able to sell. So even bad things can lead to good things, and uh, you know that was that was one of those cases. But really, in, you know, in retrospect, I I could have handled that a lot better. And you know, I, I public fighting with your boss, you know, you're bound to lose eventually. Right. Uh, you know, but. Uh, but good things came from it. I, there's a lot of things that never would have happened to me had uh, had I not done that. That's no excuse for bad behavior, but <laughs> it kind of kind of worked out. Yeah, I would say so. The other another interesting part of uh, of that part of your life was the IT guy that worked it for that you contracted with Pro Systems. So, so could you talk about that? <laughs> when we when we started the company. Mark Cuban was, or, you know, we, we literally had, I think 40 people in the company or something. And, uh, we had an office in Dallas and we had an office right outside of DC and, and I'm down there in the Dallas office with, uh, one of the other, one of the founders of the company. And there's this guy, you know, underneath his desk trying to get his computer to work. And, uh, that was Mark Cuban. <laughs> Cuban was trying to sell us on the advantages of OS2 warp. Oh my uh, goodness. I, I, <laughs> I, I played with that back in the day. I thought that was the latest and greatest and coolest thing, uh, but it so just did, couldn't take off. So did Mark. Uh, but yeah, I was, that was the first conversation I ever had with him was about, you know, we, we needed to get out get out of the Microsoft world and, uh, and really adopt OS2 Warp as, uh, as our platform for, for moving uh, plus. So, you know, it, it's weird how I was, I was talking to a college business class, a senior level finance class uh, a couple of months ago. And I told them, I said, one of the things that, that people often figure out way too late in their careers is just how small the world is. And that, 
you know, had I known how small the world was, I probably would have been a lot nicer to some people early <laughs> on. So, <laughs> but yeah, Mark was, Mark was early, early in his career. And, uh, you know, and he's a, he, he ended up having a long relationship with, uh, with, uh, Perot systems and the Perot family. I guess he bought the Dallas Mavericks from Ross Perot Jr. Uh, and as you know, continued to uh you know make that kind of a winning franchise and, and definitely a unique franchise in the nba so yeah so yeah if you if you keep your eyes open in your career you'll uh, over a long period of time you'll you'll find that you run into some interesting people who who go on to have great success well yeah mark cuban is another one that kind of the right place at the right time whenever uh, he uh, you know broadcast.com the domain and company that uh wanted to do streaming service started up and when that first started i thought there's no way this can make money because broadband access was limited and so expensive uh, but then he sold that to yahoo for like four billion dollars a couple of years later so what did what did i know um but uh everybody loves shark tank he's uh one of the guys on shark tank and uh, we'd love to see uh, little startup companies with a good, great idea, uh, get uh, an investment and take off. And you've been involved in investment groups and buying and selling companies over the years. Uh, how hard is it to, for you to pick, uh, winners, you know, when you're looking at, at uh, those startups like that? Well, I mean, the, the ugly truth is that about one in 10, will actually pay off. And so you're making early stage investments. I've made investments alongside some of the large venture capital players that are out there like Andreessen Horowitz and also uh, done quite a bit in, in local jurisdictions with angel investing. And, you know, you, you, you're looking at two things in particular. Does the idea have legs? And then is the team bankable? And... And, you know, that's oftentimes evaluating the talent of the team is often the hardest part. If you look at, you know, historically even successful startup companies in the tech space, a lot of the founders don't last very long. They end up, you know, taking a, taking a seat on the side to a professional executive manager that can come in. And you take, a look at, take a look at Google. You know, those guys... You know, they knew that they weren't capable at that period of time in their lives of running the company. And so they brought in a professional to run it. And, uh, you know, and as they got more experience over time, you know, they've now come back in and taken over control of the company and left uh, left their executive chairman in an advisory role, which is, is working. So a lot of it goes into bankability of the talent. Uh, you know, we're not smart enough oftentimes to figure out if an idea really makes sense. You know, we looked at, we looked at Uber early on and, you know, turned down an early stage investment in Uber because frankly, we looked at it and said, we don't think this will ever make money. I, I think I'm right. I don't think it'll ever make money. <laughs> it doesn't change the fact that it's got, you know, a multi-billion dollar valuation in the stock market. And so you get lots of, uh, you know, lots of opportunities there. In, in this case, I was right and wrong at the same time. Right? I was 
I don't think they'll ever make money. Yet if we'd have made the early stage investment, we would have we were more than uh, you know had a hundred times return on our, our our investment. So it's difficult, um, and it's a little bit of a crapshoot. But I think that uh, if you have the right talent, you know that's going to give that's going to give an idea that's got good legs, kind of the speed and strength to you know get to get to some inflection point where you know, you can cash out. Well, thinking about that, you know, bringing in a professional management team to, to uh, run a startup, how has Zuckerberg turned Facebook into something so big? You know, he seems like just a goofy college kid that somehow had a good idea. Um, and I thought he was still kind of the head of the head of the company on running things, but maybe not. Uh, but, how, you know, what do you think his secret is? Well, you know, I think he had a great idea. You know, most most people forget, you know, the origins of Facebook. And I remember in the early 2000s that I'm sending my son off to school, uh, you know, the only way you could become a member of Facebook, Facebook was done literally college by college. And so the only way you could get on to Facebook was you had to, you know, you had to be enrolled in that college. And that that whole community there was uh, just college students at your university. There was no interface at all, and you know, and I and I got started as a way, you know, you know, to help meet women, uh, you know, frankly. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you look at how popular that's become worldwide, you know, I think part of that is not strategy you know the strategy was to meet girls uh, yeah <laughs> frankly that was the strategy and then they thought wow well if you know if we connect these other you know if we connect my university with the university next door it's a chance to meet more girls right. um you know and that's morphed into you know kind of this behemoth of facebook but even if you look at facebook you know Zuckerberg, you know young guy, not not a strong business orientation. You know he kind of teamed up with, and I'll forget the guy's name, but the guy who started Napster, and that guy was you know kind of his advisor in the you know how to build the company, how to raise capital, and even then they did you know they did weird stuff like you know Mark showed up for a big VC investor presentation wearing pajamas and slippers. Nice. <laughs> you know, not an idiot. <laughs> but you know, hey, it's a it's a good worker if you can get it. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's I always like I always like the story of Jobs, and I had a chance to I had a chance to do work with with Steve when um, he left Apple or got booted out of Apple and and started up his next computer company, and next was going to be the engineering workstation of choice for everybody in the world and he built it as a black he built it as a black cube uh and it cost about three times what a normal laptop would cost but you know in, in his career apple you know he was a marketing genius and wozniak was kind of a tech genius in that and steve was pretty much driving everybody crazy and, uh, you know, the company was growing and was doing well. And they ended up bringing Scully in from Pepsi, I think. 
to be the professional manager to kind of move that company, you know, move that company forward. And, uh, and that meant jobs had to leave. And so, uh, a number of years go by and, uh, Apple starts stalling because they didn't have that visionary, right. You know, at the top of the company. And, uh, you know, Ross Perot was always our visionary. Ross didn't run the business every day. You know, he was our visionary, and and I think Jobs was always the visionary for, you know, for Apple, and not having that, you know, stalled the company, which kind of forced them to bring him back in. And the next operating system, do you remember what the name of that was? No. It was called iOS. Oh, my goodness. I, did, I had no idea. And, and then he comes back and takes Apple to to you know greater heights than they could have ever imagined with ipad and iphones when he came back in he had sold off the hardware part of the business and kept the ios operating system wow and that's been the core of what's driven apple since then so you know i think that uh you know it's it's interesting uh how that all came back together we've drifted a bit from from poker, but I did want to. Poker. <laughs> I, I really wanted you on to uh, talk about success and, and life lessons. I think, uh, um, you know, you have something to teach there. So I appreciate that. But are, are there any other notable poker games that you've, uh, that, that you've remembered throughout your poker career? Uh, yeah. I mean, early on in, when I was in college, I had a lot of experience, uh, for that that point in time of being able to play poker, and uh, we used to uh, like to have games at the beginning of the year and the beginning of the semester when people were flush with spending money. So I'd, I'd go to these poker games, and you know, you'd show up with two or three or four hundred dollars, which is probably back then all your spending money for a whole semester. You know, and I'd I'd just like wipe people out, and after four or five of these games. You know, some guy looked at me and he goes, uh, gee, you must know Mark. And I was like, no, nah, I don't know Mark. And they go, well, well, you play just like Mark. Mark takes all our money, too. And uh, a few nights later, I'm in the middle of a poker game, and I realized that the guy sitting across the table from me is a pretty good player. He's trapping. You know, he plays soft when he's strong. You know, and, and he's building up a pile of chips, and I'm building up a pile of chips, and I'm sitting there staring at the guy, and he's staring back at me, and he goes, you must be Pat. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah, you must be Mark. <laughs> he goes, absolutely. So, yeah, it was, uh, I I've had a 30-plus a, uh, year friendship with this guy, uh, you know, from casually bumping into him in a game, but I just thought it was interesting how when you watch the flow of the chips on the table, look up, and the guy looks at me and goes, I know who this guy is. <laughs> the, the word had got around for, about both of you. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, we used to try to avoid each other in poker games. It was a, a, good way to, a good way to keep your money in front of you. And I know you've played the main event several times in Vegas. Is that something you'll try again, or is the thrill of tournament success no longer a, uh, a draw for you? You know, I, I, I played twice, uh, you know, and it was a smaller game. Uh, it takes so long now. 
it it's really an endurance uh, exercise more than a poker exercise. Um, so uh, I doubt that I would do that. Now there are other there are other events out there, you know, where you can win sizable amounts of money, and it won't you know it won't take you uh, you know a week to get to you know a cash position, right? And so I don't know. I think they had two or three day ones and, and at least two day twos this year, you know, to finally, you know, narrow down the field enough to get them into the same room. Um, and that's just uh, difficult. And, uh, and frankly, I don't have a lot of patience for tournament play. I will do it occasionally, but um, if you've never played the main event, you ought to go do it at least once. Save, save your money, show up, Carve, you know, seven to ten days out of your schedule and uh, go play it because it's really interesting. You you know, I'm, I got to meet people like Ben Affleck and uh, Jason, um, what was Jay, Jason from Seinfeld. Uh, you get to meet a lot of interesting people while you're out there, but it is really an endurance test these days. Yeah, well, I was hoping maybe you would stake me next year and we could uh, work it together like that. Well, if you think you have the patience to do that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, i i could be I could be in for half. Uh, well, hobnobbing with the rich and famous people that you've met in your life, it must feel like you're slumming when you come to Charlestown and play with us. No, you know, I I I, I don't think so. Now, there's some there, as you know. I would say there's 75 to 80 percent of the people there that are a pleasure to you know be around and play with. And you know, one of your other podcasts, your uh, interviewee had mentioned that you know uh, poker was America. And you know, when you sit down at the table, you know, you'll have the plumbers and electricians, and you'll have the unemployed, and you'll have the guys who you know have done well financially. So uh, yeah, I enjoy it. I I think that. Uh, you know, I have a low asshole coefficient, so I, I tend not to like those people. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, you run into those. But uh, for the most part, uh, you know, it, it, it's a fun game. You know, you do it to practice, but you do it for the social aspect, too. Right. And, uh, you know, frankly, if, you know, if I hadn't gone there and you hadn't gone there, you'd probably have a longer drive than I do to get there. You know, we never would have met. And, and I, re I really enjoy playing with you and and talking to you because you're a smart guy. Yeah. And, uh, well, I don't know about that. but <laughs> That does bring up the fact that people who would not know your story, you know, you, you just seem like the average average guy. Uh, Murray's a little older and more distinguished. and and uh, But you have a big personality, so people know you and people like you. As someone said when you were way – uh, for a couple of weeks here, I miss Pat. I, he's one of the nicest guys in the room. Maybe it maybe it comes down to you your realization that um, the the world is small, so you might as well be nice to to everyone. Yeah, you know, I I think that's part of it. I I learned from my father that uh, everybody deserves to be treated well, and I I can remember a, a Christmas party that he hosted. He had helped. He had started a company with two of his friends. They were doing really well. We had moved up into a bigger house, and they hosted a big Christmas party. And the guy who did our 
her lawn was there with his wife. The butcher was there with his wife. The the Chinese couple around the dry cleaners were there, as well as you know business associates and employees. There. And I went up to him and asked him. I said, "What? Why? Are, why is the butcher here?" <laughs> and he said, "Because he's a nice guy, and you know we're celebrating the holidays." And I just thought it it, it was a big disconnect for me. <clears throat> and uh, but you know, as a life lesson, uh, you know, everybody everybody has value, and I think everybody has something to contribute in their own way. And it's much easier to be nice to people than it is to not be nice to people. So. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen me a time or two get irritated with somebody. And, you know, generally at the poker table, it means that I become hell-bent on taking all their money away from them. Uh, you've seen but, the same uh, from me also. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's a way to get revenge from time to time. But like I said, most of, most of the people there are very nice. And I could play in different places and just as easily. And, and, you know, these are some of the nicer people to play with. And it's nice to watch people change. You know, we have, we have a guy who, you know, showed up a couple months ago, Justin. And, uh, and he was by far the craziest, stupidest player that I'd played with in a long time. And, uh, and loud and obnoxious and, and, you know, I'd say over a couple months, I don't know what you think, but over a couple months, you know, I, one, he's become a better poker player. He's not as crazy, and he's definitely not as obnoxious as he used to be. So, uh, you know, it's almost it's almost nice to, you know, sit at a table with him. Yeah, well, there's days I enjoy it, but yesterday he happened to take all my money in a crazy <laughs> pot, so I don't know how uncrazy he's gotten. But he has, he has he's definitely gotten to be a better player. There's no doubt about that, so. Yeah, well, you know, uh, he played, uh, I think he played 10-7 suited against you, and uh, you flopped a set of aces, and he ends up running out of straight uh, on a 10-7. And then, if I remember correctly, uh, about an hour later, I got 10-7 suited <laughs> and decided to call and call anyway in the pot because I figured it would really irritate you if you lost to another 10-7 suited. <laughs> And uh, I don't know if you remember what happened, but uh, I I hit a straight flush. I I remember that because I got out of the hand. I got out of the hand in time, but somebody else uh, did not. But yeah, that was a beautiful straight. Well, you hit a straight flush on the turn. That was beautiful. Yeah, I hit on the turn, and it got a little bit bigger on the uh, on the river. Right. So it was it was nice. But uh, yeah. I ended up. You'll be happy to know I I contributed uh, most of my winnings back to the table before I left and. Uh, you know, I still got my, my stake money, so um, I'm ready to go back and, uh, you know, try to build a bigger pile. Well, I took out a home equity loan overnight, so I have some money to play the rest of the week. <laughs> well, I've, ta- I've taken about an hour of your time, and that's uh, – I don't know if there's any other any other questions I should have asked you to the haven't that you want to talk about, but um... – No, I, I appreciate you taking the time. It's always nice to uh... – to reminisce a little bit and uh you know i look forward to seeing you at the poker table well the feeling's mutual i appreciate very much uh you spend uh, a couple minutes here with us today thank thank you very much for that all right Dean. thank you thanks a lot and we want to thank you for once again tuning into the poker zoo 
You can find us at persuadio.nl or simply do a Google search for the Poker Zoo. Uh, there's place there to leave comments about the show. If you have something that uh, you would like to, to have aired on the show, you can call the Zoo Hotline and leave a message, 410-775-6224, or just record an audio file and send it to thepokerzoo at gmail.com or persuadio at gmail.com. Either way, it will get to me. If you like the show, tell your friends about us. iTunes, for some reason, hates us, has us down in the weeds, way below listings of shows that have long since been off the air for years. So uh, the only way the word can get out is if you spread it, which, of course, we would appreciate. So with that, we'll see you next time. He's a good